Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. Hello, um, welcome to this guest episode of the Outsider Theory podcast. Um, it's a guest episode because I'm a guest host. My name is Daniel Haddis, and I'm a lecturer in Ancient Greek and Latin at King's College London. So I want to start by thanking the usual host and the founder of the Outsider Theory podcast, Jeff Schellenberger, for allowing me to put together this guest episode. And the reason I wanted to do this is because of my guest, um, the person that I will be interviewing, um, and whom I'm going to now briefly present. Um, so this is an anonymous Twitter account, or rather the person behind the anonymous Twitter account, who goes by the name of Medical Nemesis. And she tweets at medical underscore nemesis. Um, and the idea is on for her to speak and for um, you know those who already know her writings to get some more ideas of what she has to say from hearing her and those who don't know her at all to be introduced to her. So just to briefly explain how this came about, um, I encountered, so to speak, Medical Nemesis on Twitter. Um, and um, I write quite a bit, mostly on Twitter, about the COVID response. And that's also something that she writes about. So that's how we crossed paths, crossed paths. And that's one of the things we'll be talking about. Um, but unlike for me, for her, writing about the COVID response is part of a much longer and longer standing project. Um, and I won't really try and expose her ideas because we're going to ask her to do that. But very briefly, um, she is interested in health and in healthcare and medicine and science, and much more broadly in man's overall relationship to the world and to the truth and how this relationship has changed and I think in her view been corrupted in the era of industrial medicine, industrial food, and industrialized thought. Um, now, briefly, I thought that the Outsider Theory podcast would be a good place um, in which to speak to Medical Nemesis, um, because I think that some of what she has to say does fit the Outsider Theory profile. And this partly has to do with Ivan Illich, um, who, again, we'll, we will be discussing and who's somebody who is important to her. Her Twitter name, for those who don't know, comes from a 1974 book by Ivan Illich, this Austrian um, slash American, I guess, intellectual. Um, and Illich himself um, could very much be described as an outsider, an outsider within the institutions to which he belonged or which he um, analyzed most closely, um, education, the world of development, the world of medicine, and perhaps most importantly, the Catholic Church, of which he was a priest and yet um, had very intense quarrels. Um, so Illich is an outsider. One could also describe him as a theorist, although I suspect he wouldn't like that term. Um, and I think it's fair to say that medical nemesis herself is in various ways an outsider within the world that she is part of, the world of medicine, um, the US where she lives, the world of the Orthodox Church, and even, I would say, um, within the world of um, COVID critique, the critique of the COVID response, um, medical nemesis, what she has to say is 
quite unique in this regard, or at least quasi-unique. Um, again, I suspect she would not like being called a theorist, but we'll leave that hanging. Okay, so Medical Nemesis, welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast. Um, now, so I'm, as you know, I'm going to ask you a series of questions, um, which we, we've um, looked, you have looked at in advance. So I'll start with the first one. Um, and this is, I think, just a general introductory question for those who aren't at all familiar with you or your ideas. So the way I want to do this is to start with how you describe your project in your Twitter biography. And I'll quote, you say that um, what you're doing is questioning the legitimacy of the medical establishment and the disabling impact of medicine on citizens. So I'm hoping you can just give us a brief, brief sketch of what this means, um, particularly sort of the key terms here, how you would define the medical establishment. How is that different from just doctors and nurses? Um, what do you think has made it illegitimate in as much as you're questioning its legitimacy and what has made it disabling? And then also a bit about yourself, if you like, how are you questioning it? You're telling me you've been at this for 20 years online. So um, I'd like to know what that's been like, uh, how that project is going. So yes. Well, thank you. And this question, you know, it, it's a very hard question. And I think the way the description and the profile um, came out is um, significant tying into theory and the language that really means nothing because when you read it, you have questions of what this means and this already creates a barrier to understanding it. And I think part of the COVID problems stemmed from the same issue. So my description is kind of almost um, an accusation of myself trying to be, uh, you know, plain, but, you know, I have an excuse. I wrote it in 2016 and much has changed since then, uh -huh. but I knew better in 2016. Um, you know, le legitimacy has to do with law and um, the way it stands now and the way that we have seen in the last three years, um, this law makes health and uh, war on illness the law of the land and really the quest of the whole civilization and the meaning of life for everybody, mm -hmm. which, uh, and, you know, it runs under the slogan of saving lives, which is a great juxtaposition to the idea of saving uh, a life in Christianity or in a lot of faiths or some faiths. I'm not an expert on all of them, but, um, so this religion, religious slogan was hijacked and weaponized in um, the legal system of a secular state and, um, you know, how it takes shape in actions of people who um, create knowledge, investigate, you know, legitimate problems of um, illness and, you know, people who suffer from illnesses and how it is later implemented through actions of doctors and nurses um, in hospitals or in um, ambulatory clinics mm -hmm. and how people experience it. it um, you know, it all kind of ties together into the fact that we all came to a standstill in a freeze and stopped living in a regular colloquial sense of this word. And, um, decided that we will exist as atomized units, meaning that I will sit in my room apart from you sitting in the room next door, and this will be our life, and we will communicate via computers, 
and order food from outside uh, that will be created by imaginary somebodies. Uh, <laughs> anyway, and it ties us into the meaning of what it means to live as opposed to life, because life is an abstract term outside of any body, outside of any physical body, really loses its meaning. It becomes a plastic word of no meaning mm -hmm. because of what it means to live for you is not the same of what it means to live for me. And it goes beyond a beating heart and, you know, brain waves or however we imagine a body because you and I cannot feel brain waves, but we, we can feel unsettled in the morning for various reasons. So it, it ties us into the idea of can medicine that fixes, you know, physical bodies or numbers in the statistics of saved lives that arise in statistics, if it can do anything for you as a man who lives and breathes wherever you are, unlike anybody else, and... Um, this is what it comes down to. It comes down to you, to one you or to one me, and not some life in abstract. Mm -hmm. I come from a very practical background where I deal with real people, and you know, I've dealt with real people one on one, and you know, I would take however long it takes to make you better, and uh, you are not an abstraction to me. So, um, whatever knowledge I have, um, it, it has to serve you as a real man, not as an abstract life out there that I read about in a book. Uh-huh. Right. Not a life on a chart or a, um, a statistic um, on the TV. Yeah. yeah. And ultimately, like you mentioned earlier, it comes down to when I face you, um, you know, whatever abstract great theories you, you and I had, it will come down to what is truth here and now, and we will be able to establish it only between you and me, looking each other in the face and in the eyes, and trying to negotiate something that's extremely ambiguous, something imperceptible, something that we may even imagine, but we will have to establish some semblance of reality and truth as it pertains to you, so you will be able to get up in the morning and go and actually live. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. Uh, thank you very much. Um, that, that was very, um, very eloquent. I think a good introduction to um, a lot of the way you think. I know that saving lives is, um, I think you said once on Twitter that the easiest way to get blocked by a doctor is to ask him, why does he want to save a life? Um, uh, that might not be a, right, a correct quote, but something like that. Um, so I know it's an expression that everyone thinks is completely harmless, but that you you routinely question um, because um, lives are not the same thing as as human beings or need as souls. Um, okay, so I don't know if you wanted to say anything about the, the 20 years or should we move on? Well, 20 years, I mean, you just go about your life you know, I went about my life living and as you go along, you learn something and, you know, you solve routine problems in your own living and you be, you become somebody. So um, everything that I do comes out of personal experience and, um, you know, some knowledge that you derive along the way and how you pick and choose what you want to study. And uh, mm -hmm. recently I've just realized, you know, 
my sort of career started as a volunteer for a charity helping breastfeeding women. And the way that the volunteers are selected, we were selected as something that's theoretically called embodied knowledge. So we were already women who breastfed for one year. So you already actually a walking body of knowledge, not in a theoretical sense, but mm-hmm. in a very physical sense. So you are a carrier of knowledge that exists as in its physical form. Mm-hmm. And, you know, supplemented by certain ideas. And then you undergo apprenticeship style training that is very unlike the training in academic environment as pertains to the same subject. I've actually undergone the same training for the same area under two completely different systems. And I'm not in a position to quite differentiate them well, but I can probably discuss them how different they are, where you come from theory, you know, from, you know, theoretical breastfeeding mm-hmm. to, to the cases where I actually am presented with a case and, and I am training you know, trying to solve some kind of a problem and what I will diagnose and how I diagnose the problem will be very different than how it's done in a medical system. And recently I've discovered that the way that that system was actually set up, it was set up like pre-industrial medicine diagnosis where I will be actually diagnosing you from the words that you speak, not necessarily from physical examination or from some tests. Mm-hmm. So the, the words that you speak um, will become the diagnosis and we will be, you know, so to speak, treating or solving the problem that revolves around how you perceive yourself and how you perceive what the problem is, what the root of the problem is. I might supplement it with, you know, biomedical knowledge. Sure. But the primary practical application that the words that you speak are the truth. And this is what I will go by. And, and mm-hmm. this is markedly different. So, the, the theories that Elitch is writing about and all of this academics who research the history of the body, the history of the medicine, how physicians practice medicine, I've actually lived it. You know, I'm able to say, oh, we still have remnants of these practices. They might incarnate through different, maybe um, the way they come about, the sources can be different, but essentially they exist the way they existed in some form in 18th or 17th or 16th century. Mm-hmm. Well, that that that's good to hear. Um, it's not all completely disappeared. That was uh, thank you. That was fascinating about about breastfeeding. I think since you've mentioned Illich, it would be a good time to move on to talking a bit more about him because, as you know, that was my next question. So, um, Illich is obviously of particular importance to you, as I've said that you you've taken your your anonymous name from the title of one of his books and your your beautiful pinned tweet, which I recommend to everyone, is a quote from that book. Um, I won't read it out loud. Um, and off and on, you write about him a great deal on Twitter, um, both quoting his writings and also writing about his life, which I know you're interested in and think is important. So I'm hoping you can tell us a bit about when and how you first encountered Illich and what the effect of um, of your reading of him was and has been over the years um, and how you perceive your own relationship to him. Now, I wanted to frame this in a particular way. So um, because I'm a Latinist, is a line I know well. It's a well-known line from the poet Horace. Um, in Latin, it's nullius addictus iurare in verba magistri, which translates roughly as, um, this is something Horace says about himself, that he's obliged to pledge loyalty to the words of no master. And this is a, something that people like to quote a lot to um, 
declare their independence of thought, that they don't subscribe to any master. And then in contrast, there's a rabbinic saying, um, and this is not literature I really know, but I know the saying, um, such as not literature I know at all, um, where the young Talmudic scholar is involved to, quote, get himself a master. So very much the other way around. So I wonder um, if you'd like to answer this, whether you think of Illich as in some ways, um, Illich or anyone else as a master to you, um, are you happy to think of yourself as a disciple or as a student, or would you characterize your relationship in some other ways? This is also, it's so hard to speak about myself because I mostly think about theories or, you know, cases or histories or uh -huh. stories of other people. So, so these are very hard questions. The way I found the leash was very interesting. I was going to school and uh, before taking a course in, um, that related to maternity and, you know, infant health, I realized that everything that I knew was true was about to be annihilated during the course of my study because you go into school and you know that you are immersed in all of these very compelling arguments and statistics and theories. And you know that, you know, everything that you knew before will become untrue. So um, in the summer before taking that course, I uh, started reading. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, I don't remember how and what I started reading, but. You know, since you gave me the question, I traced, I think, the origin where I found Ivan Ilyich. I thought I found him in, in um, quotes and references somewhere, but I might have found him actually in the main text of a book I was reading. And, uh, and I don't know, maybe I encountered his name several times that I bought his book. And, and I went to Amazon History, which preserve, preserves history uh -huh. for people like me who can't remember anything. So... Um, I can pretty accurately say that I discovered the book Medical Nemesis in uh, 2009 in summer. And I bought the book, I read it and it really resonated with me. And it's a very theoretical book. It's mm -hmm. written in a very dense academic lang language. This is why I think one of the reasons why it does not take because we do not respond well to theoretical language, we understand well to poetry and um, you know, fiction. Mm -hmm. Because we understand these plain words, they actually correlate to something that we know and, and we can feel like everybody knows what, you know, warmth of the sun on the skin feels like. Mm -hmm. uh, but nobody knows what infrared radiation is. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a good analogy. <laughs> yeah, but um, so he already resonated with something that I already knew. So in this course of studying of... Um, how to prevent the truth that I knew um, to disappear during the onslaught of academic, you know, study. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you very quickly wind up with the question, what is truth, how, to, how it arises, how knowledge comes to be. And uh, these are all very difficult questions. If you start reading about them, you will go crazy, you'll give up. <laughs> uh, and like I said, I'm very practical when I come and I meet you, you, you haven't read any of these theories or you have read all of these theories. And, you know, here we have a very practical problem of some sort and we have to solve it in very practical ways and you have to be better or at least not worse than when I found you. Mm -hmm. So, um, so Ivan Lich, to me, you know, he, he, he's a scholar that, um, I, I, I try to understand him, and of course, it's very hard because he's long gone, so I can only go by his writings, and he was very explicit that his words taken out of context 
of the conversations with people that he was friends with, they will be misinterpreted. There is another barrier to understand it. Him, I think his mother tongue was probably German. I'm not sure. When I asked David Cayley, what was his, you know, what was the first language Ivan Ilyich learned? And David Cayley didn't know. And I think it's important because the language that you learn as a child impacts how you perceive the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I will. I don't think I will ever learn German. So this will become a mystery. Not that I'm given up. You know, I, I will still make my best effort to understand what he was saying because I think what he was saying was phenomenally important, and it was important um, for, for many reasons because he was a scholar. So a part of his life he operated within academia, which is very secular, but he was a man of faith. Mm-hmm. And whenever um, 2020 rolled in, um, I think any normal person would p- pick up any book of wisdom, which I pick up, picked up the Bible on March 13, 2020. And it became obvious then that you will be abandoned by all. So if you know something is true and you stand your ground that everybody, including your family, your children, your friends and whatnot, um, you will be essentially isolated. Uh, I wasn't so much concerned about the virus as what was to come mm-hmm. and uh you know whenever this nuclear bomb drops so to speak and you know everybody loses their senses and you're the only, the only one who seems to be sane or so you hope you start looking for survivors who also retain their <laughs> senses <laughs> uh-huh. so i mean you start you know scouring for for anybody with any <laughs> coherent thought left and you know I stumbled upon David Cayley and uh, we talked on the phone a couple of times uh-huh. and we exchanged a couple of emails and he directed me back to the book Rivers North of the Future which is a very difficult book to read uh, I'm in my third year of reading it and I'm making great progress really uh-huh. <laughs> and it's very hard for a person who grew up like myself in the Soviet Union which was an atheist state and when we read books of great authors we had references to the Bible explaining what it means because we really, you know, we didn't have the Bible, mm-hmm. couldn't understand it. So for me to understand Elich as a man of faith, because this is where what of his thought came from, was extremely hard. But I, I feel like I've made tremendous progress <laughs> in that area. And uh, it, it is, you know, a lot of these things, it's hard to understand them through the mind because faith is something that that is you just accept it as is and you go from mm-hmm. there you cannot rationalize it um so when march 2020 rolled in it, you could um, only argue it from the perspective of i and it was obvious that i can die i am mortal which does not prevent me from carrying on living but this is not how everybody interpreted it everybody uh, immediately placed themselves in a risk category which i did that to an extent as well i'm not living mm-hmm. outside of, of the times and the knowledge system as it exists today but ultimately drawing on my previous experience as a young woman preparing to um, have a child at home uh, my children both of them were born at home mm-hmm. For the second birth, I wrote a death plan. And who knows why a 20-some-year-old woman is writing a death plan. My midwife looked at me with pity, which many people looked at me with pity. Uh (laughs) But, you know, if you look at 
statistics, you don't have to be formally trained. The more you look at it and whatnot, you see that the outcomes are pretty binary. You either live or you die. There is mm-hmm. no kind of third outcome. And, um, you know, whenever you are embarking on any journey, you must be prepared to die. Mm-hmm. There is just no way around it. If you think it will not happen to you, you are deluding yourself. Yes, yes. Um, risk profiles are not going to get you out of that if if your time has come. Um, so that's very interesting that you came back to Illich to some extent during in March 2020. Is that right? Oh, very much so. Um, I think, I mean, you, you'll correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think at some level you are one of the people who was rather less surprised than most um, by what happened, or at least less sort of utterly puzzled. I mean, I certainly had just absolutely no idea what was going on. Um, But in some sense, at least, it fit with an understanding you already had or were developing of the relationship between medicine and society. So I wonder if you could tell us if that's right. Um, And just more generally, how you see the COVID response of 2020 onwards as fitting into a bigger picture, a longer story. Um, And do you see what we did in response to COVID as a rupture within that story or just an episode in something that had begun long ago and that is still going on? um, Well, first of all, I was as confused as anybody saying who uh, exists in some (laughs) semblance of, um, you know, normal, sane reality, I do not exist outside of some, you know, mainstream scientific thought. There are things that are established and, you know, we all agreed that this is how it is. And all of a sudden, I think the surprise was that all of a sudden everything that we knew was true, suddenly it wasn't like the idea that you could uh, prevent the spread of this type of um, you know, mm-hmm. microbe and, and prevent a cold. It's a previously unprecedented, crazy idea. I mean, this was surprising. So I was surprised by that. I was not surprised by necessarily what was happening. Um, how do I say it? Like I mentioned earlier, I knew that some dark times have come mm-hmm. and it was more of an apocalypse in the meaning an uncovering of the true nature of the modern state and how it operates and uh, what health worship and saving lives means in very tangible practical terms you will be like an animal who is allowed to you know tinder mate because Fauci said it was okay which is really (laughs) contrary to to any traditional sane you know civilized approach I mean, we're not animals. Uh, our managers uh, seem to think we're animals. We're not animals. So when COVID rolled out, it was obvious to me that what was going to be disrupted is, you know, our shared breath. I don't know how I knew it, but I knew it. You know, I wasn't thinking about mating on Tinder. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was very obvious that it will be our shared breath. That, that would be interrupted. And later through David Cayley, I've discovered Ivana Lich's idea about conspiratio, meaning, you know, breathing together uh-huh. as, a, as a shared breath between our early Christians and how it ties into 
Eucharist, you know, sharing a meal, you know, everything that we know of what it means to be us, not just animals, but to some kind of civilized people, or what I thought we were civilized people, all of a sudden this was disrupted. So I, I was puzzled by that, but uh, I was not puzzled as we, we talked um, earlier in, in private about dragons. You, can, you see a dragon when you see a dragon. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And, and you know that this is the time to stand your ground and a lot of people think of it in terms of saving their lives as a physical existence but to anyone who knows what a saved life is you know that you're protecting your spirit your soul uh, that you know your um, the suffering of your physical body is actually are uh, quite irrelevant to the fact that you're about to be killed as man and I use man to avoid the word human, so man means men and women. Mm-hmm. But uh, because a lot of uh, the scientists, you know, envision us as this collection of mitochondria mixed with calories that make up this animal. Um, but I don't think we are that. I mean, I think we are we are past that. And um, what it means to be man is quite different for different people all over the world. But each of us seems to know what it means and we know when it's taken away. So it's actually very hard to say, uh, if I ask you, Daniel, what does it mean for you to live as man? You actually will not know it. But if I take everything away from you, that mm-hmm. makes you who you are, you will immediately know it. So in March, 2020, I was not confused as to what my response should be. And, and it's not theory. You, you live it, you suffer it. Um, you know, that you may die, but, uh, you know, I, w- I would not be dying for any idea that would be a sin to be sacrificing myself for something. I would die in, in the normal course of life whether the state finds my existence unacceptable um, mm-hmm. or, or you know, or I die of a cold, which can happen. Um, so I was not confused as to what I should be doing. And... Um, but I cannot make anybody do what I think is right. And, and the difficulty also that many of us uh, who work in healthcare faced in families, uh, you know, you might know, you know, the, the science and the theory, and you might be uh, knowledgeable about, you know, the wise, you know, ways of living that existed before all of this nonsense. But, you know, your family members might not necessarily know it. And what do you do? You you carry on living as you normally do. And you see if anybody joins you in living the regular way. And I was really fortunate that all of my family mm-hmm. really banded together. So we did not have major discord in the family. So I was fortunate. I lost good friends or, well, I didn't lose them. They got lost themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, some people are lost. Uh, mostly the people who, who went to school got degrees and, and forgot um, <laughs> the wise ways. But again, uh, like, you cannot be angry at them. I see a lot of anger on Twitter now. The time to be angry and outraged was in March 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we are so past that. Um, you know, life goes on. Can you be upset somebody was lost? Didn't know they will continue being lost. I see mm-hmm. a lot of literature coming out um, about the COVID response. And when I analyze the quality of it, it centers around very secular ideas that uh, are all shortened out against 
um, ideas of health, like mental health, spiritual health, mm -hmm. and I don't know what spiritual health is, or, you know, outcomes or, you know, economic parameters or whatnot, like, it, this is such a weak position that, you know, whatever the next round of crazy will come, all of these people who are on the right side of history, they will promptly wind up uh, on the wrong side of history, just because their overall position and relation to the world is just a very weak one. It's grounded in wrong ideas. Mm -hmm. um, yes, I mean, I tend to be a bit more charitable. And I sometimes think that people, that uh, I mean, it depends, of course, but they just don't know how to express it any other way. Um, and so it comes out as, you know, as you say, statistics and mental health impacts and all these sort of numbers and charts. But, you know, I, I certainly I know people who struggle to say it other way, in another way, but I think are trying to say something something more more rooted. But I mean, hope, well, I suppose we'll find out or we won't. We'll see what happens. Um, but thank you very much. I think that takes us actually rather well into our next question if you're happy to move I would on. like before we go okay, yes. to the next question Please. there was um um and, and nobody ever says it but uh one of the downfalls of covid response was the idea that you can save actually even a physical life uh which on an individual level is crazy because I cannot guarantee you that I can do anything for you because a lot of the people who are into you know high tech or ivermectin, vitamins, whatever, steroids, you know, vaccines and whatnot, they do not, they have not seen that a very benign cold can take you out so swiftly and so promptly. The reality of it is so stunning. It, 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 you actually cannot even be afraid. You can only be surprised that you lived all of your life thinking that we've conquered infection. And here you are, you have a cold and it can knock out a 20 year old very quickly in the matter of a couple of days. So, and um, I would like to quote uh, actually Angry Cardio, which I think he had an uh, angry cardiologist on Twitter who had the most spectacular perspective in all of Twitter that in more traditional religious traditions, Maslow's approach is upside down. As an example, if people are God-fearing, they will come together as a community, then God will grace them with resources. You know, this whole idea that we don't know what we are doing, that this is bigger than us, was completely absent in the secular scientific realm mm -hmm. of numbers and statistics. You know, we think we can tweak this parameter and everything else will, will be working. It's like we really don't know what we're dealing with. We know a lot. I, I mean, we are spectacular. We actually know a lot to help you when you are suffering. But the way we deploy it, the way we use it is completely insane because we're not God-fearing, because we think we know it. And, you know, when you start with, I know it, you already lost. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, uh, I, you know, one sort of forgets, but, you know, back in 2020 and 2021, there was this endless talk of keeping cases down and keeping the R number down and all this stuff. And it was just, I mean, it was so insane that, I mean, you know, as you say, both on the individual level of trying to sort of think you could control your life in this way and also that society could somehow both make this its project to make these numbers do this thing and then make that work um yeah daniel i'm going to put you in solitary isolation to save the numbers that you know th this is so insane because like i said the truth exists you know, between us, when we face each other, I have no idea in what sane world I can think that 
me doing something so abhorrent to you can lead to anything good. It's just, mm-hmm. it's incredible. And that brings us to the, you know, benefits and harms discussion. Traditionally, you were concerned with doing good. The way it was prescribed in every book of wisdom, you know, this is good, this is bad. It's, it's you know, very black. and It's in a way very black and white, but then the deliberation of what you do when you have reality now, you know, we're always dealing with now, we're not dealing with the past. You know, now, how do we use our experience and knowledge now? So it's a complex, it's not a calculation, it's a complex deliberation. There was no complex deliberation whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, I mean, as you suggested, I think that does bring us to our next question, if you're happy yeah. to move on. Um, so, I mean, if I try to explain to people sort of who you are and what you do, um, a phrase I could use to say, well, she's a critical, she's a critic of modern medicine and modern medical paradigms. Um, and I think that when I say that, sort of people who are a bit attuned to this would expect that to mean that the sort of thing that you say is that we need to avoid over-medicalization, um, too many treatments, and we should focus more on things like lifestyle or diet or exercise or mental well-being, mental health. But in fact, um, as those who um, follow what you write would know, words like lifestyle or diet or even um, exercise um, or well-being are words that you would repudiate. Um, and that you think that using words like this is part of the problem, I mean, not just the words, but what they stand for. Um, so I wonder if you could say a bit about why you why you do repudiate this sort of vocabulary, what you think this this way of speaking and thinking implies, and why it can be corrupting. Well, um, part of it is uh, rooted in what Ivan Ilyich wrote, and part of it is rooted in my own experience. Whenever I was growing up, there was part, you know, the Soviet state had very similar to the um, German, you know, pre-war or World War to ideas about health. They're very parallel and how they ran. So body management existed when I was growing up and I was part of it. You know, we had these books on get up early and, you know, brush your teeth and uh-huh. exercises and eat right. And, you know, I very much, you know, engaged in it. You start engaging in it voluntarily because it's the right thing to do. That regimented body. And in my, you know, recent poking around literature, I am not you know, I do not exist outside of time, but this focus on just health, the thing is like, you were trying to be well to to do something else. Like Mm -hmm. this wasn't your sole focus and you were not trying to be well in the future. You were not trying to live a certain prescribed number of years because of some life expectancy. Like a, a lot of the Western construction of why you should be engaging in this, you know, healthy lifestyle, was absent when I was growing up. It was really grounded with the reality of now, and it was grounded in what is the right thing to do now, what is Mm -hmm. good. So it would not occur to me to eat an artificial sweetener to do, you know, to prevent something happening 20 years from now. We don't eat artificial sweeteners because, you know, it's garbage. Mm -hmm. You know, who knows where they came from. You know, we eat something that we know and, you know, and the way it's regulated. I have one essay on thermodynamics of eating a gallon of ice cream. Some ideas that are presented in the um, scientific community, is so you know, the, the ideas are so bizarre 
that uh, people like me don't even know where to begin because this is not how we think. When you come from a, from an idea of what is good to do, you know, trying to prove, you know, why you shouldn't be doing something that's crazy by default, it, it's just very convoluted. You need to step aside and exist in a different system. This is where kind of the different system of knowledges that can exist side by side and some of them can be combined and some of them cannot be combined. And I mm-hmm. think this is what happens. Like, I don't know what mental well-being is. I know when I wake up and I cry in the morning because, you know, somebody upset me and it has nothing to do with mental well-being. The way it is, you know, wrapped in words, the way it's explained, what kind of meaning it takes would be very, very different. So, uh, and all of these ideas of diet, exercise, mental well-being, they're so abstract. I, you know, I would like to actually, you know, look at somebody and discuss this one somebody if whatever is going on with them you know, mm-hmm. has any meaning. And a lot of the people that we label as sick, they're actually very... Uh, well people, historically speaking, because they are responding to abnormality in a very normal way. I mean, if if I curse you out, abuse you, and make you feel like you're a nobody, it would be only normal for you to feel unwell. Yes. For for me to offer you uh, some pills to make you feel better while I'm abusing you is a very strange way of going about it. Yes. I mean, I think this is one of the ways in which the I mean, you know, you say it's this thing that gets repeated all the time as well. No one took into account the mental health impacts of the lockdowns. And, you know, now we're seeing the mental health effects and so forth. And this phrase, mental health, gets thrown out a bit, uh, thrown out a lot, which always bothers me. Um, And I think one of the reasons it's like, it's not that people were having mental health problems, that people were being sane in an insane world. And, you know, that's going to break you down to some extent. But there's nothing, it's not that you're unwell. It's just that you're not you know, you're not made to live that way. Yeah, and my stand to it is, um, you know, a lot of people want to um, abuse you and they convince you that you need to engage in these coping techniques like virtual meditation by Zoom uh, to to feel better while I'm abusing you. You know, it becomes an imperative for you. If you are any man who pursues any truth, it becomes imperative that you actually suffer and refuse to meditate by Zoom. And, you know, make your abuser actually face your suffering that, yes, you know, you, you will not be fixing yourself to make the abuser feel good about themselves. Yes. And, and, and this is what we we invited. We we are constantly being invited to engage in some wicked game that I I don't think we should take part in. This we should say no. And um, if you need to cry and you know be psychotic or however inconvenient you need to be for the system, this is what you need to be f- f- for your own sake. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yeah. I think that, that that's a wonderful way of putting it. Thank you very much. Um, so if you're happy to move on, because I think that the next question is really just a detail of the one I was asking you just before, um, I wanted you to ask you a little bit about food, because um, um, food is something you write about quite a bit, um, and uh, um, I know you even post pictures of. Um, so, I mean, I gather that you give us particular significance to food, of the things that you like to think about. Um, so can you just say a bit more about this, how the nature of food and the practices of how we eat um, 
fit into the overall paradigm that are the questions that you like to ask? Yeah, well, to medicalize means to look at something, to analyze it uh, through the framework of uh, medicine or biomedicine. Mm -hmm. And food is one of these things that um, I, I happen to have grown up in a different time and place. Um, it's something that, that just is, it's, it's a non-medical thing. You just, you know, you go, you buy food, you cook it. it, it it's a non-medical activity. And what I see around here is really, it's some kind of a medicinal activity. You're basically cooking up medicinal meals every day <laughs> to make your mitochondria feel good. <laughs> and, and, you know, anyway, it's so bizarre. So a lot of the stuff I write about food is really... Um, you know, without saying, hey, this is what I'm doing. Um, you know, I, I'm given an example that you can think about one and the same thing, one and the same action, one and the same substance in many different ways. And the way that we think about these calories now uh, is not the only way. And, you know, several generations ago, people didn't think this way. And the way you thought about food and made sense of it and how it came to your table it had some sense. So it wasn't abstract. It came off some people who lived somewhere. It came off their food, uh, off their um, toil and soil. Um, you know, these people knew how to grow it and we don't. So mm -hmm. when you grow it, you, you actually see something that people who buy food in the grocery store would not see. You know, it makes you feel a certain way. I, I, and people accumulate this knowledge individually and collectively. So uh, if you you know that in your community, you start becoming sick this way, you know, your whole community might adjust food this way, or you might adjust it individually based on how you feel individually, if you're related to health. But by and large, nobody was eating healthy, the whole healthy eating. And, and the reason I put a lot of stuff out there is to highlight precisely, like I'm not eating healthy. Healthy eating was something that reserved for the sick. Like had I become mm -hmm. sick, my uh, eating pattern would change. I would become um, much more strict, limited, ordered according to some imagination that you know somebody had. You know that was imparted upon me when I was growing up. But it's not necessarily scientific, logically. It's part of of the tradition. It worked mm -hmm. for you know, my people, so there is no reason for me to question it. It's like, if you don't eat soup for lunch, your stomach will dry up and shrivel up. Mm -hmm. You cannot argue with that. You shouldn't <laughs> argue with that because your grandmother would make you into a stew and, and just uh, go along with it. And this is how you eat. And funny enough, people at my work interpret that I eat uh, water with a spoon. They think that I don't eat food, that I eat water with a spoon. It's actually interesting to see how people interpret something. Uh -huh. So this interpretation inside from the outside, I think is very much part of the whole conundrum as it relates to medicine and, and what it means to be well and not well to eat and not eat. Mm -hmm. you know, we, we all make sense of it. It's not all rational. And uh, to make it all rational is to miss out on, on a lot of things. You would never eat cake. Right, Although right. Angry cardiologist said that mitochondria loves cake. <laughs> right. Um, so you don't go to your grandmother and say, well, grandma, that's not evidence-based, so um, I'm not going to eat soup. That's missing the point. 
the, the thing is with, with older people, and I think part of the problem is the way children are raised. Children used to be raised a lot by grandparents and older people because the younger people, you know, parents, they were involved in active labor. You couldn't take out mm -hmm. able-bodied adults of production. You would all starve. So it was, you know, younger teens or preteen girls and older people who were staying home, they were raising children. There was this ability to pass knowledge, skip in a generation. So mm -hmm. there was this, there was, you know, experimenting and change and adjustment, but there was passing on of the tradition. Old people will not listen to your modern nonsense. When my mother put me as a newborn on a windowsill in November uh, to harden me off, you know, to prevent me from being sick, my grandmother was having none of this. She covered me up with warm cloths and turned on heat. Uh-huh. Because, you know, a young woman goes and she reads books on the most, you know, on the latest scientific theories. Older people cannot afford these experiments. They've seen a whole life full of experiments. Mm-hmm. So, and this is where the books of wisdom come from. They're really compilations of wisdom of what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Thanks very much. So my next question is about vaccination. Um, and this is, again, a topic you write about quite a bit. Now, I don't want to ask a yes or no question. Are you for or against vaccination? I think that um, people can read what you've written and um work it out as best they can. Um, but what I would like to say is that there are two criticisms of vaccination that I've taken from your writing um, that you seem to particularly emphasize. The first one is this idea that vaccination creates, treats populations rather than individuals. And the second one is that when a vaccinated person is harmed by a vaccine, what's happened is from a certain perspective, someone who is not previously ill has been made ill by a medical procedure. So I wonder if you could explain um, why you attach such weight to these criticisms, if indeed you do, um, which will take us to the question of how you think about risk and about cost-benefit analysis um, and why these are ways of thinking that you, that you question very much. Um, well, Vaccination is an interesting subject because there are people who are harmed by vaccination and uh, supposedly we give, again, it comes down to from being abstract to being very practical. So you have a healthy child or adult, you give them a shot to prevent something from happening in the future and uh, they become severely sick. And uh, where, where I work, um, I come across people who are sick from getting vaccinated and they never knew that th this could happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, it's just plain wrong. You come to me, you're well, I'm giving you something and you become sick. This is not the purpose of anything in medicine. Traditionally medicine dealt with sick people. Mm -hmm. uh, we are at the stage when we think that prevention, so pre-treating something we, with medicine with medications is something that's good. Um, if you go back to traditional thinking, you would not be given medicine to healthy people. The expectation is that you live a certain way, you, you know, you do good, basically, you get up in the morning and you do good, whatever good is in your community and how you see it fit. And should you become sick, this is when you go to the doctor and, you know, a doctor starts 
treating you for whatever problems you have. Um, and again, how this treatment arises is also very interesting because a lot of the physician philosophers in the past, they clearly said a lot of the problems that people have with health, they are related not to your physical malfunctioning, but more with some social or moral issues that have nothing to do with medicine. But I would, and it's, and it goes back to what truth is. So you, you are in your well state and you come to me and, you know, I run a little screen on you and, and you know, you ought to get this shot. And the numbers in the population health look good because if I give out so many shots, I will save so many lives. But if we go back to, you know, the traditional understanding of truth, it came out, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one interaction in the mm -hmm. present and, and is bound by some wisdom and knowledge. It wasn't bound by calculations. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it's just a whole different way of thinking about it. It's really a stand. Uh, do I treat healthy people or do I not treat healthy people? And, you know, how do I arrive at that position? So the position now is, you know, we're just napalming the whole population with medicine uh, to prevent something from happening and somebody out there it, it is just a very bizarre way of thinking about it. What I'm concerned with when I face you, I'm concerned that you are well here and now, Daniel. Like, did, mm -hmm. you have, did you have a good night's sleep? How come you were sleep deprived for a week? You know, you really ought to sleep. You know, what do you eat? You know, how is life treating you? You know, these are the things. And typically these things would be regulated actually in the community. Usually women dealt to with them, you'd have a wife or a mother or a grandmother who would be minding you, like, should you be falling out of the, you know, normal, sensible ways of being a physician would not necessarily be attending to you in your state of whatever demise. Uh -huh. You know, the, the role of a, of a physician is not to be your nanny, you'll be your mother. You know, these are the things that were governed within the community and family, really. And you by yourself dealt with it. But, you know, with, with the, so these are, you know, the, the treatments. But going back to vaccination is like, mm -hmm. why, why, you know, it's very obvious. I give you medicine, and when I give it to you, I cannot tell you how you will react to it. It can be an awfully safe medication, but one in seven billion people will get sick. And if I am facing you and I made you sick, it, it was wrong. It was wrong no matter how you look at it. It doesn't matter that the other six, whatever billion people were saved or didn't. Mm -hmm. But today, we are not looking at good versus bad or good and evil or is this right or wrong we'll look at numbers mm -hmm. and uh, i have no no idea how so many people could be dragged into uh, this thinking and a quick way to really check it if choosing the wrong path is the right way um, you know we can look at the people who were dying from infectious diseases whose lives were um, quote unquote saved and see, are these people doing any better today or are their lives as miserable as before? They just suffer a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. And what, at what we will find, the same people who are dying from infectious diseases, you know, they're the same people who suffer from horrible chronic diseases and we torture them mercilessly. Mm -hmm. So um, this whole treatment of outcomes really even um, is highlighted with the with the surgeries we do on people that are immediately crippling, say if you come in with some small 
you know, cancer growth or, or even uh, cases like before you have any cancer growth, amputation of healthy organs to prevent something that might happen in the future to you because the population shows that, you know, it happens more frequently mm -hmm. in people somehow related to you or even not related to you, but you imagine that it just, why would I maim you to prevent something in a population? It looks wonderful, but I have maimed you in front of me. I, mm -hmm. I mean, his, historically it would be considered insane. I, I have no idea why we're doing this. And, and so uh, but again, like practically, so I live in the United States and I deal with people, you know, who are all very different and the right people who believe in vaccination. Vaccination would be right for them because, you know, one question I would ask you, if you become sick and disabled, because if you are dead, you will not care. If you become sick and disabled <laughs> because you didn't take vaccination, would you think that you should have taken it? The same question I would ask you, if you become sick and disabled as a result of a vaccination, would you think that, you know, you were wrong taking it? You really need to be doing what you think is right mm -hmm. and live in the consequences of it. Because this is why I'm saying there are a lot of people who took vaccination, they became disabled, do their family members died? And these people say that had they had to do it all over again, they would do it all over again. And people find it bizarre. No, when you that what you're doing is right you would actually repeat it mm -hmm. uh, continue doing what is right because not doing what is right is wrong and a lot of people are bound by these moral um you know moral codes yeah. you cannot not do what is right 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 that makes sense um so it, it, it's not a cost benefit like the people who who started um what ivana leach calls self algorithmizing um you know it's a question of right and wrong and a lot of people do um act really they're very simple decisions what is the right thing to do and often it comes down to custom so it's yes. not necessarily a logical decision it's just you know i always get vaccinated so i will get vaccinated this time but again because when we're dealing with the past, when I deal with uh, real life people, what you were doing in the past does not matter because we are in the present now. There are people who vaccinated all of their lives, but this time they didn't. And people who didn't vaccinate before who decided to get vaccinated. My job is to help you figure out what it is that you want to do now, that when you wake up in the morning, you are happy with your decision, no matter what happened, and you will be able to live with you. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um that that actually takes us to our next question. If you're happy to move on, yeah. um, because it's about the past. I mean, thank you for saying that about vaccination. That's certainly, I'm sure, some listeners will find this um, very troubling. Um, I myself still pondering these problems, but um, it is, I think, extremely helpful to just think think outside the paradigm, which, as you say, is both sort of very statistical and at the same time very moral in its way. Okay, but because you were talking about the past. Um, one thing that you say a lot in your writing, and you've been saying several times already um, during this conversation, and something that I think Illich himself says a lot, is that there's been a sort of deep rupture from the way things used to be, the way that man used to understand his, his life, his place in the world. And I just wanted to press you a bit on this question of the past, because you tend, um, when you write about it, to not be very specific about exactly when this past is located. Um, so, I mean, do you see this in terms of a sort of 
a specific rupture in time, a gradual fading away. And do you think that this this past, this different um, way of living is something that we've lost forever, as much as anyone can know, is something that all of us have lost? And also, do you worry, as I sometimes do when I read you write in this, read your writings of the sort that um, you sort of over overvalue the past, over romanticize it, as they say, um, and that um, you know human nature itself hasn't changed. Has there really been such a fundamental rupture between then and now? Well, there are several ways to go about the past. There is the past that exists as a myth. And whatever, when, when somebody speaks of the past, they usually imagine something. You would have to quiz them or question them or inquisition them about what exactly they mean by this past. And then there is the past that's a you know, formal study of history that is much more complicated, much more complex. You know, when you start studying it, scientifically there are requirements within you know the scientific method of how you should frame it most of the time when i read about you know some ra random generic past it's you know it's a non-scientific term it's the uh -huh. it's a mythical something uh -huh. and, 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 and you know the mythical um the mythical past is idealized you know we will long for something that's lost but again if we bring it to something that's very practical and I will tie it to Ivan Ilyich uh, because 10 years um, after he wrote Medical Nemesis and he's, he thought that it was 12 years because he has trouble with numbers just as I do. Uh -huh. uh, he, you know, he was very pleased with what he wrote, but he realized that he didn't go far enough. He didn't realize that um, bodies as we exist, you know, you when you imagine yourself as a body, how you conceptualize yourself is very diff uh, different. So each age has their own bodies. And, and when we speak of the past, and this comes very critically important when, you know, we speak of patients or, you know, treating people, we have very different people existing in present um, that come from different places, from different times. And the way they think of themselves as in flesh bodies is very different. So this universal biomedical body that exists in a textbook does not exist in reality. So when I'm dealing with a patient, I'm very keenly aware that, you know, I have to figure out how this person thinks of themselves and what it is that, you know, we're treating, you know, I'm not dealing with numbers. I'm dealing with a very concrete person who thinks a certain way. So this, you know, past you know, it depends what you use past for mm -hmm. and how will you be using it practically because we do not live in the past, we live in the present. Past does not exist. You know, the people who go uh, looking for, you know, primeval optimal diet, you, you know, this food does not exist. This time mm -hmm. is gone. You're not primeval. You exist here and now. Your reality is different. You will be fooling yourself if you try to recreate past you cannot recreate past it's just mm -hmm. not possible you have to figure out how you want to live now and 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 what happens in Ivan Ilyich writes about it modern technology and um, how knowledge is constructed in biomedicine actually recreates you as man as how you imagine yourself so you move from somebody who was a feeling body 
when you woke up, you felt a certain way. When when you came to me, you would be talking about, you know, how you felt. And, uh, you know, you know, somebody would be treating essentially how you felt. Right now, you can be feeling totally great. And I'll give you an example. One morning, I walked into a room of a patient, and he was an 85-year-old man. He was diagnosed with B-cell lymphoma, and he looked very pensive. So I asked him, like, how are you feeling this morning? And, you know, he, he felt, you know, he felt fine, but he, he really didn't feel fine. And I asked him, what's the matter? And he said, I, I don't know what B-cell lymphoma feels like. And I asked him again, how do you feel right now? And he said, uh, you know, I feel great. I said, this is what B-cell lymphoma feels like. <laughs> the, I, I, it, you know, this disconnect, and it happens very frequently. There are patients whose numbers look spectacular, especially like young people. Their vital signs look great. Their blood work looks great. All of their imaging looks great. But you know that they are tank tanking. And uh -huh. the first people to notice that they are tanking usually is, you know, their mother. Who, who comes in and, you know, this is whom you ask, do you think your son or daughter are doing better? And they don't know why, but they see that there is something happening. And then you alert everybody, you need to watch this person like a hawk because they are tanking. And our technology is not picking it up and we can be delayed by two or three days. But you see with your own eyes that this person is just not doing well. And, you know, eventually technology picks up on it. And then there are people whose numbers are all out of whack. They have cancer all over, you know, the, their blood work is just all out of whack. They, they feel fine. Uh, they're completely fine. There's nothing wrong with them. They are as normal as they can be. But somebody coming over and giving them the prognosis that, oh, you know, Mr. Smith, you have three weeks left to live. That is going to kill them because nobody wants to hear this. Mm -hmm. So this, this will be essentially ending their life. And not so this is where this unstable definition of what it means to live, what it means to save a life, um, you know, it, it actually has very practical application. When I walk into a patient room and there is, you know, a patient who complains to me that we aren't treating him well, he's not getting better, he's getting worse, and he's 84, he has brain cancer, he has tremors, and, you know, his left leg does not work, his right arm does not work, and, you know, I... And, you know, it's seven o'clock in the morning and he tells me it's just nothing is working. And I feel very frustrated that this man had 80 years to think about these things. And um, but then, you know, he, he's a poor, uh, uneducated man. And, you mm -hmm. know, you, you really take pity on him. The only thing you can say to him, it's very hard to wake up in the morning and realize that you may die and that your body is given out on you. And he says, nobody ever spoke to me this way. Thank you. Mm -hmm. his problem is not the physical incapacity his problem is the fact that he's facing death he doesn't want to die but he's very alive in the moment and and you know the treatment you uh, give to him you actually give him his life back mm -hmm. you actually play a song um, let the sun shine in and you know he doesn't remember that song until he suddenly remembers it and he's very happy and the fact that you spoke to him of you know his fear of death because nobody you know, talks to him about this, makes him feel better. And as you check on him throughout the day, he actually has a wonderful day. His wife visits and, you know, he eats lunch and whatever. And at the end of the day, he goes to bed happy. You realize you gave him his life back for that mm -hmm. one day because he is thinking of death in the future while, you know, you know, living that's happening right now. 
becomes marred by something that will happen in some future. You know, these unstable definitions of what it means to live that get encoded with life and what it means to save a life. And, and this is where, where we are kind of, you know, treading. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who come for a certain type of salvation, they will be very disappointed because anybody who's ever um, been sick, even with a simple cold, you realize how alone you are in your suffering. Mm-hmm. And how nobody can do anything for you and you can suffer through it and, you know, recover or don't or, you know, however. And, you know, somebody next to you can make this um, suffering more bearable. And uh, if I've had a cold and know how miserable you feel and I come to you and, you know, I can commiserate with you, it will make you feel better. It will make me feel somewhat worse, you know, suffering with you. But this is what it is about. Right. Right. Um, thank you. That's um, th- there's a lot to think about there. Um, uh, uh, some very some very good stories. Um, okay, are you happy to move on to the last question? Yeah, sure thing. Um, excellent. So, um, and I think that this this is a good place to end because uh, um, uh, a lot of people listening would probably well, you've touched on it at this stage, but I think they'd probably might be interested in a somewhat um, more formal answer. So. Um, when I discuss your work um, with friends, because I'm not, not your only admirer out there, um, a question that um, comes to tends to come up at least um, in one way or another is that people will say, "Well, we know what medical nemesis is against, which she's criticizing, but and we find that her critiques are very compelling, but it's less clear to us what is she for." What sort of advice would she give us on some of the topics that she cares about most, about how to eat or how to nurse a baby or how to decide when and whether to take a vaccine or a pill or to undergo a surgery. Um, When I read you, I sometimes think that your advice could be summarized as something like, um, you should be born, you should eat, you should sleep, live and die as people did before the age age of industrialized medicine, industrialized food, industrialized thought. But of course, the obvious objection there, which you've touched on yourself, is that we are in the age of industrialized everything. So I think that the way I'd, I'd ask the question is, how prepared are you to advise others about what to do in practice within this context? Do you think it's a question of finding compromises with the world we live in, of making some sort of radical break? And how would you distinguish between what's suitable for a given individual, a given man who's in front of you, and to what extent one can ever make sort of universal rules or guidance about these questions? Well, it's not surprising that I write the way that I write Ivan Ilyich, um, you know, wrote within uh, the tradition of uh, apophatic theology, mm-hmm. which is, ne- you know, negating what God is not. And, you know, I-, I tend to write about this in the same spirit or in the same tradition about health and, uh, you know, uh, or medicine. And, you know, Again, when we speak in abstractions, it's very hard. You really have to find some somebody, <laughs> literally, and try to situate the knowledge that you have. And you will, you you must arrive at the question: What is truth? And what is true? And what is true in these circumstances will start arising within some tradition of knowledge. And uh, what I write about a lot is. Um, Contrast into traditions of knowledge, which is one is science as a body of knowledge that arose out of some axioms that were actually rooted in Judeo-Christian tradition as, 
you know, God is the absolute truth and, you know, except we removed God from there and that, you know, the world is ordered according to some laws. Again, this idea came from um, the idea that God created the world and it was ordered a certain way, except all of this was removed. So um, science, you, you know, it's sort of like ho hollowed out faith um, that makes no sense. This is why I can pour a poison into you in hopes to make you better and you will suffer the same effects as you would from the illness, but you will feel better because the poison is supposed to cure you, but you are still sick. I, I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever in any, in any sane, you know, perception of reality with the naked eye and with your senses. Um, so it, it's very hard to give this, you know, random advice. I would say anybody should arrive who, who, who is seeking what is truth and, um, it is really up to you to discover what truth is wherever you are for who you are. And, um, you know, I find that um, even if you, for non-believers, just to understand how knowledge arises, to um, study how knowledge arises within the scientific realm and how tyrannical it can become. And religion can be tyrannical as well as we all know it it's not all glorious we struggle with the same problems and here somebody decided uh you know this didn't work let's give up doing good let's start calculating by numbers because numbers look great we can be doing all kinds of wicked things because we're getting great outcomes this is you know this is the losing way just because um we fail to do what good is it does not mean we we need to give up on striving to do good it might not be perfect, but we're looking for a possibility. And like a lot of these scientific writings, you know, whenever somebody comes with an invention, you know, what they're looking is a possibility. And it's up to us to look what kind of possibilities to look for. So to contrast, somebody could devote some of their time to understand how scientific knowledge arises within what system of axioms and then pick up any, you know, textbook of any wisdom, whether you pick, you know, Torah, Bible or Quran mm -hmm. and read and really set it, you know, set aside your scientific knowledge and try to read it and try to understand how these people encoded their knowledge, how they passed it on and from where it came, from where it came from and how it guided them. And, uh, then when you live your life, a lot of the struggle during COVID came, it's like, I don't know what to do. Like there were all of these people who are supposedly so learned. We have all of this MS knowledge. We have computers to spit out answers for us. Like Google, what should I do? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, traditionally you would not do that. All of that encoded knowledge, really it's about the past and the book of wisdom, the way it's, encoded even in law and um, how all of these wise men and sages deliberate you, you really draw up on the experience and you see this present reality unlike any before and you decide what should I do now not how wicked I can be and what I can get away with to derive the most benefits but from the fact that there are certain things that I, I do not control and I am to submit to my fate. 
And how do I continue doing good under these circumstances? Because there are writers who uh, approached COVID as like all the choices we had were bad. Mm-hmm. We just had to figure out which ones of them were less bad. Mm-hmm. This is not the way to think. When, when you woke up uh, on March 13th, 2020, I woke up and, you know, there is this media that, you know, there is the drum beat, like we're going to war and you wake up in your kitchen and you think, I'm going to war, I'm going to save the world. But because you are saying, you know, that your job is to really walk, you know, make some tea, cook some breakfast, you know, eat. This is your this is your job. You will not be saving the world. You're supposed to take care of yourself, your family, and tend to them in whatever circumstances until your time is up. Mm-hmm. But, you know, an average person that I've seen in the West, you know, they took out some charts and started calculating numbers and you know, started worrying about what the Chinese do in their laboratory while sitting up to, you know, crap up to their ears. It's like, go clean your toilet. <laughs> it, would be, it would be very healing. You know, I, I understand that, you know, what the Chinese do in their labs is very important policy-wise, but for an average person dealing with this crisis, it was very personal. Is how should I live and what is good for me to do now? Mm-hmm. And it's not, um, you know, uh, put grandma into solitary confinement. It's mm-hmm. not abandon the sick. It's not think that I will prevent Daniel from dying because I think I can do this because this is insane. I cannot guarantee you anything, but I can tell you, Daniel, I can make you a cup of tea and should you become sick, you know, I will tend to you. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Bring me some soup. I think we've got. I think we could probably leave it there because we've um, we've still got a little bit of time. Um, is there anything else that you particularly wanted to to add? Well, I think we've discussed so much, and uh, you know, I, I hope I sounded as confused as I am. Because <laughs> it's all very confusing. You know, the important thing for everyone, I think, is just if you can figure out what it is that you should be doing that is good. I think we will all be in a better place. I, I think the moment I wake up and think, I know what Daniel must do across the ocean. I think this is when I need to go get my mental health checked. <laughs> <laughs> if there is such a thing. Okay. Yes, exactly. Okay, well, thank you so much. Uh, this is this has been a wonderful interview. Um, so just to, uh, just to um, repeat, um, Medical Nemesis um, is, um, you can follow her on Twitter, at medical underscore nemesis and something I forgot to mention um, at the beginning is that she also has a substack at medical let me get this right um, it's medicalnemesis.substack.com that I encourage everyone to check that out um, and to follow her um, oh, thank you so much hold on there is one more thing that I would like to add that's actually very important a lot of this academic writing is just wrapped in all of these words nobody understands like what is embodied knowledge nobody knows it you know, when you start asking people, what is life, what is, what is health, you know, all of these things, nobody knows it. You know, part of the clumsiness comes out is trying to decode all of this abstract, philosophical, theoretical, academic writing mm-hmm. into plain words where you can, you, you can actually get up and, and do it. But what I found that when you speak plainly, People actually don't understand it because it's too plain. A lot of people enjoy reading something that's abstract 
feel good about themselves and you know you don't have to do anything this idea that you actually have to get up and do something it's very alien we are so used to being managed mm-hmm. somebody else will come and tell you what to do and really the only purpose of education for you to um, know letters is to decipher the instructions as to which conglomeration point you need to come to to be treated for whatever it is, whether for ignorance or for bodily malfunction, that is really the only purpose of education. It is so bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> well, as someone who teaches myself, I, I hope we can find some other purposes. Okay. Um, is there anything else you would like to add? Yeah, I think that will be all. And I am so grateful for um, just this gift of a conversation. It is so rare nowadays to discuss something beyond the weather, and even the weather is off limits now because it's climate. (laughs) Well, I'm so grateful to you for taking the time. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, have a good night. You too, bye-bye.